So we are going to continue in our series called Work is Worship. If you've been here, great. If you haven't, those of you who are joining us online, thank you. We're glad you're with us. Um, you know, for some of y'all, when we've been kind of walking through this, it's, it's, it seems like, yeah, that makes sense. I've heard that before. My work, my, work, my um, uh, you know, what I do for a living, my vocation is something that is a, an extension of who I am. And that is a way to tell God and worship God through what I do every day. It's not just what we do on Sunday morning, but it's every day that I have an opportunity to uh, uh, to worship God. But for some of us, it may be something new that we think about. I've been kind of thinking about it more as I do some things. I'm like, am I really worshiping God in the way I'm doing this outside of, of wherever I am? Is this a way to show God that I really worship Him in every aspect of my life? I wanted to share a, a story that I shared with the first service that I read about recently, and it was uh, about a church called the Living Hope Church in Chicago. And this was a few years ago. But uh, they were in kind of a rough section of town, and there was an old pool hall that had been abandoned and was kind of dilapidated. But they purchased this building, and they were going to try to fix it up and, and do some sort of a ministry in that neighborhood through this. And so they began this massive uh, restoration or renovation, if you will, and they were engaging people from the church, obviously, church members, uh, volunteers within the community that had construction experience, and also just random passers-by say, hey, you want to help us do this? And uh, the pastor, whose name was Brad Bear, he explained that the neighborhood residents would often stop by while they were working on the project, but they knew it was a church, so they were stopping to try to see if they could get some help because it was a you know relatively poor neighborhood, low in economic uh, means there, and so they needed some sort of a material assistance. But also during this time, they would lock this place up while they were working on it, but there were a lot of break-ins. People knew what was going on, and they would steal equipment and tools and fixtures, and it, and it got kind of frustrating. So in light of the neighborhoods at this particular time, 23% unemployment rate, the church decided to go a different direction. Instead of using all volunteers from the church, they decided, you know what? Let's start hiring local people from this neighborhood. Let's make them a part of this project. So they hired 50 people off the street, giving them a paycheck and teaching them new skills. Or if they already had them, they employed them. And they said our primary, the pastor said, our primary way of trying to help without hurting those in need. I want you to think about that phrase. Primary way of helping without hurting those in need. And we'll go back to that in a little bit. Was to invite anyone who came looking for help to learn new skills and put their existing experience to work on this old building. And along the way, they realized that completing a day's work together seemed to release this shared God-instilled purpose and created a natural context for forming relationships. And so the church out of that spearheaded what they called Hope Works, and it was a community development ministry that has helped 74 people find jobs for the longer term in that area. And I think that's a neat story because a lot of times, and, and we know this where we were um, over near the airport for many years, a lot of people will come to the church for help, won't they? And I, I want to go back to that phrase trying to help without hurting those in need. Do y'all understand kind of the context of that? Sometimes we don't really help people that are in need by just giving them stuff. We hurt them, don't we? 
because we're not really helping them to move forward. And a lot of times we've talked about that. Sometimes it's easier just to give somebody a $20 bill and get them just to go on. Don't disrupt the service. Don't mess. Don't waste my time. But we don't really get to know that person, their background, what they really need, and, and we can help them work. And that's what this church did. You know, give them a job, teach them a skill, and help them to be able to not hurt them, but help them that's actually helping them for the long run. So I don't know if you all know this, but one of the things we do here at the church is that when people come to us for help, we certainly try to help them and um, help them with their needs. Um, and we don't want somebody walking away going, well, that church didn't even help me. I told them I had a need and they wouldn't help me. But if you come back very shortly again saying, I have another need, then we say, before we'll help you again, we've got a couple of people who do financial help and kind of coaches, and they, they want to sit down with you and kind of help maybe get you on a budget and help you with, with what's going on. And most people who are sincere, guess what? They'll surrender or commit to that help and then others are like oh well, i don't have time for that you know and they're just on to the next place so y'all kind of see where we try to go with that we try to understand that we're trying to help people because work is a a part of our lives and last week we looked at how it's possible possible to become overzealous sometimes and how we do our work we can be ocd as i said and again i'm not making fun of that but we can just become perfectionism and and we in the process of working with people whether at our jobs or even at our own house i think i use the illustration of folding towels can make relationships get tense because we're not doing it right and so we have to think about that i had a family talk about man we were just talking about the towel folding thing just the other day which was funny because it happens at other people's houses but we saw how Martha, as um, we saw in the gospel, she was worried and upset about a lot of things that she didn't need to be worried and upset about. And Jesus kind of helped set her straight and give her a sense of peace about things. And her sister Mary, as you remember, she was sitting at Jesus' feet. She was doing and had chosen what was better and was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. Now today, I want us to look at another possible side of the coin that a lot of you are going to like that are hard workers. Like, well, it's about time we started talking about the other side of that because there's some lazy people in this world who need to be, you know, have a fire lit under them or whatever it is. And that's true, isn't it? Because we understand that. There's people like that. We deal with them in our families and our work, and it frustrates us. But we're going to talk about that and how Paul actually addresses this in a church in the, uh, in, in the early church. Um, and we do understand that, obviously, from last week, relationships are of utmost importance. And spending time in God's Word is absolutely of prime importance. And taking time to relax and rest and take vacations, those things are important. God has sur surely talked about that in Scripture and, and how we need to make that as part of our lives. But everyone has to do their part, don't they? Everybody has to chip in and not become dependent and let everybody else do something, do all the work or provide the resources while someone else is idle or involved in something that prevents them from working and taking care of their own needs or the needs of their family. Like I hear this from my kids sometimes, and I'm sure y'all do too. You know how they have projects at school they have to do, right? And they're on a project with other people, and they invariably come home and go, you know, I'm doing my part, and this other kid on the team's doing their part. But this other kid, he ain't doing nothing, or she ain't doing nothing. And, and it's frustrating, isn't it? Because they have the ability, they can do it, but they're just not pulling their end. And that's frustrating when a team tries to work. But so what we're going to talk about a little bit is sometimes we realize, you know what? There's some people that aren't doing what they should. They should be helping out. They can do this, but for whatever reason, they're not. And you try to be helpful and you try to help them, but sometimes you're not really helping them. So we're going to talk a little bit about this. So we're going to look at First and Second Thessalonians and just a little bit of background about those 
letters. If you don't know that, those are two letters from the New Testament that Paul wrote to a church that he and Silas helped establish in a place called Thessalonica in that first century. I believe it was on their second missionary journey. Paul went on at least three missionary journeys. And on the second one, um, he went to Thessalonica. And you can read about this in Acts 17 because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about Jesus' life. Then the church started. And in Acts 17, Luke writes about these missionary journeys that Paul and others went on. And in Acts 17, it talks about when Paul and Silas started this church in Thessalonica. And it was kind of crazy how it started. So most every town that Paul went in, he would go in and find out where was the Jewish synagogue because that was his background. He would go in and they would start tracking with him about the prophets and the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and all that. And then all of a sudden Jesus would say, yeah, but you know all that was pointing to a new covenant and this Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. And he's been here and he was crucified not long ago and he resurrected from the dead and this is why i'm here to present the gospel message to you and some people lost their minds because a lot of times after paul shared that there was a riot in the cities if you read through acts there was riots they didn't want to hear that but in this particular um, case in Acts 17 luke lets us know um, that there were some jews that heard the message and became believers in jesus christ there were several uh, uh greeks in the area who heard the message and became believers. And then he said in these terms, not a few prominent women in Thessalonica also became believers. So a lot of people tracked with the message of Jesus Christ. But then it got to be so violent there that Paul and Silas had to leave. But the church was established. Their time there was well spent, and there was a group that became believers and started to form a church there. And so later, Paul would, and this is probably some of the earliest of Paul's letters, if not the very earliest letters he sent out. So he went on to, to, to start some more churches, and then he'd say, hey, I've heard what's going on in Thessalonica, and I want to encourage those Jesus followers, and I want to take those issues that they're dealing with that I'm hearing about and encourage them on how to deal with those. And I love to read the New Testament, and I love to to read about issues in the church. You know why? It makes me feel normal. Because we're human, right? And when we say we got issues in the church, the church is not supposed to have issues. Yes, they are. Because we're human, right? We're going to have them. Maybe we shouldn't, but we do. And so when I read the New Testament, it says those people closest to Jesus had issues and they worked through them and so can we. And we have to, right? So that's Paul. God knew that. And that's why he inspired these writers to write the New Testament so we could hear about it and go, yeah, you know what, that's practical advice that we can choose in dealing with our stuff in our, in our own churches. Now, in this particular thing, just a little bit more about Thess uh, Thessalonica, there was some issues that were going on. Some people believed that Jesus was coming back very, very soon. So these people, some people in this Thessalonica area were going, well, since Jesus is coming, I'm quitting my job, and I'm just going to sit here and drink lemonade till he comes back. It's like, no, that's not a good idea, okay? That's some of it. But then there were some other things that were going on in the culture. Some commentators believe that there were some social and economic and political issues that were going on in this particular community. And you had Jewish people, you had uh, Greeks and Romans, and they were all kind of clashing about how we should look at this politically or socially and all this kind of stuff. And some people were not going to work because they were dealing with these issues at the time, and they were getting all involved in that, and they weren't working. And so Paul's kind of addressing all those people and go, hold on a second, you can have an impact in your community about these social issues, but sometimes it's not the best thing to get all involved in it. And I'll, we'll get into that in just a minute when we read the, uh, the letter. But Paul is, was... Um, 
um, just trying to deal with some of these issues in, in Thessalonica, especially about their jobs and their work. So Paul spoke to this, and we're going to read it. So we're going to start in the first letter to Thessalonians, chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12, and it kind of catches in on the 11th verse that's kind of an extension of the 10th one. And listen to what Paul says to them. He says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not dependent, be dependent on anybody. What's Paul talking about there? Work with your hands, live a quiet life, and mind your own business. You ever heard anybody say that? You know, somebody was getting into business that wasn't theirs. And Paul's addressing that pretty candidly. And he's concerned here for the community of Christ within this pagan Roman Greco culture that also has some Jewish people and some Christians. But a lot of the, the Roman Greek people, the Gentiles who were turning to be followers of Christ, they're saying, I still have people I work with. I still have some of those pagan values. And I'm hearing all this stuff as I work every day and I go out into my community and I want to respond to it. But how do I respond to it? And some people were really getting into it. But Paul says, telling him to be careful about these political and social debates among outsiders. Those who are not Christians are hearing the way you as a Christian are responding to social issues, to political issues, and sometimes they're turned off because of the way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Our thing, our platform is not out in our community, but have you ever been around somebody at work and you're going into the break room and uh, you go up, oh, then you just walk out. Because you know that guy's going to bring up politics and it's going to be awkward and they have a real strong opinion, or she, whoever it is, and you just don't want to be around that because it's just awkward. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Or maybe it, you know, family things like Thanksgiving, like, oh man, you have to, you know, drink a Red Bull and get, you know, oh, here we go, I got to deal with Uncle Crazy Man, you know? And I understand that. I had a dad that liked to talk about political issues all the time, and he didn't care who it made feel uncomfortable. I remember one time I was at the emergency room with him, and uh, he had to have stitches because he cut his head. He had raised up real fast and hit his head. And so um, this uh, lady comes in to, you know, initially look at it, and she's going to do his stitches, and he starts bringing up political things. And she left the room for a minute. I go, Dad, stop. Do not do that. She's sewing up your head. Okay, and she may not agree with you, and you know we don't want something to go awry because of that. But y'all know what I'm talking about. And so sometimes Paul's saying, sometimes lead a quiet life, mind your own business. And we maybe not are vocal at work, but in our culture, what do we hide behind a computer? And we feel like we got to respond to everything that's out there. Somebody says something, and most of the time when we respond, somebody doesn't read our whole post. What do they read? The first two lines, and then all of a sudden they X us off because if that's the way you think about that, then you're not my friend anymore. I'm not going to, you know, and that's the way, so we have to be careful. So I think Paul, if he were talking to us today at Southwest, he might say, be careful. Maybe just be quiet. Don't respond to that unless you can actually talk to somebody face to face and actually hear out exactly how they think and believe. So you have to be careful of that. And I'm not looking forward to next year as an election year, are y'all? Because I know it's all going to start again, isn't it? And I want to remind you all of that. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not say anything. You don't have to say it. You know, Be careful with how you do that. Because Paul's concerned that outsiders are just looking. And if you don't agree with me and think like I do, I don't want to be a part of those crazy Christian evangelical people, right? Is that not true how we look? So we have to be careful and say, work with our hands, mind our own business. And through my work... 
Because maybe I don't say anything. Like maybe he goes, I notice you always walk out of the break room when so-and-so's in there. Why do you do that? Well, he just makes me feel uncomfortable. But surely you have an opinion about those things. And all of a sudden you have the respect of another worker and you can share your belief system in a different way. So Paul's certainly concerned of, of what's going on in the community there. Um, now, some folks were really thinking, and Paul got blamed for this in the second letter. He addresses that a little bit, and he talks about the second coming of Christ. And he says, like Jesus did, it'll be like a, a thief in the night. You don't know, but some people were getting into speculation. And he even got, uh, some people said, no, Paul said this was the last day, so we're just going to quit our jobs, like I said, and drink lemonade and just wait for him to come. It's like, no, I didn't say that. And you should be working while you're waiting for Jesus to come anyway. So Paul is making sure they understand that by their choices not to work, it can put unnecessary burden on others to take care of their needs. Because obviously it sounds like in the church, some people were going, we're going to take care of the, uh, this man because he's doing that. Wait a minute, what is he doing? Well, But he quit his job, but why? He can still work. Why are we taking care of him or her or that family? They can work, possibly referring to those inside the church who were taking care of those within the church who really maybe didn't necessarily need that help. So the church community should be willing, obviously, to help brothers and sisters in need, but there also has to be some accountability with that, as we probably understand. So then Paul addresses uh, another issue as far as as those who work in the church and those who work in the church. And he wasn't just talking, I don't think, about ministers or pastors. He was also talking about not just leadership like elders and deacons, which we'll be voting on later in in our um, uh, congregation meeting, but also people who just work in the church, who are on ministry teams and minister to people and take care of people. He says you should hold them in high regard. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. He said, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. He's talking about within the church who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Those are two terms he's going to use in this letter a lot. Idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now notice Paul is encouraging the community of believers to live in peace and to serve one another. And he does realize there's different places we are in our lives. Like, for instance, I've noticed in the church over the last few years, some of the most valuable people we have working in the church that aren't paid staff are retired people. Because you know what? The season they are in their life, they have the time, right? But what we have to be careful at is if I have time to serve and I want to give my time serving, somebody else that's not serving and is not in a season of their life to be able to give that kind of time, we don't need to look down on them like, why aren't you serving more? Why aren't you helping more? Why aren't you working more? No, maybe in a different season of their life they will, but we have to understand that. So Paul's saying, be careful. Realize everybody's in a different place and you don't always know where they are in their life right then, but be careful the way you judge them. And We're all working together, but be careful about that. Sometimes people can give a lot of time and be serving, but sometimes, you know what, they're in a bad place and they just need to be ministered to, and they can't serve right now because of where they are. So that's practical advice for us today and how we view the importance of the work and the ministry in the church according to where we are in life. And that's ever-changing, especially in a diverse group like we have here. So in this last text, I want to I wanna read to us, but I do want to go back to that, um, that one thing again where he says... Uh, Again, 
Be careful with those, and there's those, those two words, idle and disruptive. So that was an issue that was going on in this church, and Paul's trying to address it. So in this last text I want to read, Paul again refers again to that idle and disruptive group that's within the church. And it was obviously a problem that they were dealing with, and he was hearing back wherever he was. But listen to the words Paul uses and how he refers to this situation, not only to those who were involved in it, but also to him and Silas and how they deal with this particular issue. So he's saying, I got something to say about it, but I want you to remember when me and Silas were there starting the church, here's something we did, and I bet y'all remember that. So listen carefully. So in 2 Thessalonians, and just to say this real quick, Paul wrote that first letter, and they didn't quite get it. You ever been to the doctor, and he says, you need to put your arm in a sling because you got and don't move your arm. And you go, okay, yeah, yeah. And as soon as you walk out of there, you throw it in the back seat of the car. I ain't doing that. That's stupid. I got work to do. And you start working, and then you go back in a week. Oh, my arm hurts, Doc. He goes, because you're not wearing your sling. So Paul goes, I wrote you a first letter, and I still hear about this problem with people being idle and disruptive. And so he writes a second letter, and he's a little more uh, uh, you know, to the point on this one. Listen to what he says. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we commend you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden on any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave, this, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. There's that phrase again. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As far as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey the instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Man, he's getting right to the point, isn't he, on this time? There's that thing, idle and disruptive. And he said, that's not healthy church right there. So there were certainly some issues with folks who were being idle and disruptive. And this obviously was hurting the witness of the church outside. They're going, hey, that person doesn't work, and they're supposed to be a follower of Jesus. And people are going, they think we're all like that. We, they think we all have quit our jobs, and we haven't. We're not like that. We're not being disruptive. So Paul is concerned, and he responds candidly, as you can see, because he loves these fellow believers. He started this church. He knows their names. He knows them. And he's concerned uh, with how those in the community see Christ and the church and the actions of Christians. And it must affect every aspect of their life. And he wants them to understand that. And our daily work and our production says something about the God that we serve. And notice how Paul refers to what happened as he and Silas were there with him. He says, look, me and Silas were there starting that church. And he says, you yourselves know that we were not idle nor did we eat anyone's food. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so we would not be a burden to you. So Paul's saying, as a preacher, I should be able to get paid for doing what I do. That's Old Testament. The priest got paid. Why shouldn't me and Silas? But we didn't take it. 
because we were trying to set an example. We didn't want to be a burden to you, so we weren't going to do it. And there were some people out there who were getting paid, and it made people, you know, like televangelists, you know how we see some of those guys, and we go, I don't know about that. And so he goes, no, we're going to set a different kind of example. So him and Silas did that. And he said, we didn't do that because we didn't have the right to such help, but to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. So Paul, Paul, if you didn't know this, was bivocational. He made tents in that first century. He went around wherever he went preaching. He also made tents. That's how he made money for himself. And he was a tent maker, and he worked with his hands. Now, I'm telling you, if I lived in the first century, I promise you I would have bought a tent from Paul. Because that guy was like such a perfectionist. I bet it was the quality was there, but the fact that he loved Jesus as much as he liked to make quality, I would have bought a tent from him. And I bet a lot of people were like, the tent maker has something to say? I'm going to hear him tonight. That tent guy that makes the tents, I want to hear what he has to say. He had an example to share out in the community. So he and Silas, again, said they didn't have to do this. We were setting this example. Now, I think about this. We don't just talk about this stuff. We don't just give you instructions. We actually do this. We're setting the example. And we all, uh, we're not above working, and we didn't want to be a burden to you. And notice that he says we were a model for you to imitate. And talking about service or ministry is one thing, but actually doing it is where lives are changed, aren't they? People want to see a sermon. They can hear me up here, blah, 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 all day long, but they want to see that you actually practice what you preach. And Paul and Silas lived that out. Now, I know we had a preacher, our preacher that was here, Jim Dyer was here 38 years, and one story that I always remember, he was a servant. He was never above working and doing things. But I remember he had been at our church like, I don't know, 25 or, or, or so years, and there was a... Um, reception for Atlanta Christian College, which is Point University, and it was somewhere, and he was there, and I remember there was like one of the students going, hey, that's Jim Dyer. He's been at Southwest like 25 or 30 years, and he kind of had a name, and somebody spilled a drink on the floor at that reception, and Jim grabbed a bunch of naps and got down on his hands and knees and started wiping up the drink, and that student went, wow. He had just talked about what, you know, what, how popular he was, but he was not above that, and it made such an impression. And as he told me that, I was like, yeah, that's who Jim is. I watched him my whole life do those kind of things. Um, so recently, I want to use a couple of illustrations about how important it is not just to talk about all these things that everybody else should do and should be, but how do we practice it in our own lives. Y'all know who Stephen A. is on ESPN? A lot of y'all do. He's a... Uh, Maybe you don't like him because he's very opinionated. He's very loud, but he thinks he knows it all. You know, he's going to tell you, yeah, I know the Cowboys stink because of this, or the Braves hadn't done this. And he just goes on and on. I have to, I have to just move on a couple of things. I'm like, all right, that's enough, you know. But recently, I don't know if y'all know this, but he got asked to throw out the first pitch at the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium for their first game. It's a pretty big deal. So he goes out there, and he's, you know, he's got his Derek Jeter jersey on, and he's doing all these warm-up things and all this hype. You know, oh, it's Stephen A., you know, because he, he, you know, he's always talking about pitching staffs and what baseball teams need to do because he knows it all. Well, he got up there to throw the first pitch out, and he bounced it to the catcher. It was pretty embarrassing for somebody who's such a loud mouth and kind of knows it all. But the funny thing about it was, you know, here's a guy who's so candid and talk about how he knows the insight on how everybody else, all athletes and teams should be, and he failed in front of everybody. But I'm telling you, he was mocked, deservedly so, mercilessly, by a lot of people. I don't know if y'all heard Steve Harvey called him and told him, and it was hilarious. He ragged him out. So, so he kind of deserved that. 
But I say that on the other hand is people don't want to just hear how wrong everybody else is and how nobody does it right and you know all the answers, but then when it's your turn, you don't have a solution. You're not any better. Nobody wants to hear that. So the other illustration on the other side of that coin is when I was uh, uh, a few years ago, I was serving in a, a, a church in North Georgia in Clarksville, Georgia. And this guy uh, that was um, in our church name was Greg Garrison. And uh, Greg has passed away since. But Greg and I became pretty good friends. And he was a rock mason. You know what a rock mason is? They work, they do stone things on people's houses. And up in this certain section of North Georgia, there was these kind of high-end houses. And he had got quite the reputation for being the guy who you wanted to do your fireplace or your barbecue pit or any kind of stone accents you wanted on your house because he was amazing. And he was. But he was getting so much work, he had to turn that over to crews. And he spent most of his time going from site to site, dropping off materials and just kind of overseeing it. So one day he told me this story about one of his crew. He says he was dropping off some rocks, and these guys were listening to him. He goes, look, on that right there, y'all need to do this. I see y'all kind of having a problem. That doesn't look right. And what you need to do, and he was kind of telling them what to do. And one of them goes, well, what do you know? All you do is sit in the truck and get work and drive the truck around all day. Well, he shoved that thing into park and took the key out and went over there and snatched that hammer out of his hand. And for the next two and a half hours, he gave those boys a tutorial on how a real rock mason, and they were in awe, and they never questioned him again. Because they saw firsthand, he doesn't just say this, he actually knows how to do it, and he can do it. But he was in a different place right then where he needed them to listen to him. And so I think when I think about things like that, we all understand there there's certain ways we have to do things but we need to be careful about if we're going to tell people that we need to set the example like paul was saying so i want to kind of close with this um last article which i think is interesting about a lot of times we say we just need to be happy in our jobs we just want our employees to be happy but why are they happy and listen to this in this article from forbes Business consultant Liz Ryan argues that companies shouldn't be obsessed with having happy employees. Instead, she argues that employers should focus on helping employees connect to a greater mission. And when I read this article, I thought about that's exactly what we want in the church. Not so much that we have happy congregants, but they connect with the mission of Jesus Christ in the world, and they're a part of that. So listen to what she says. She says... Um, uh, let's imagine a person completely immersed in his or her work. We'll use the greatest violin maker in the world as an example. I don't know who that is, who makes the greatest violins, but we'll imagine that it's an Italian violin maker named Franco. And Franco has a studio where he has 15 to 20 apprentices and journeymen who make violins along with him and making the most exquisite violins in the world. They have quite a reputation. Is Franco happy? He is alternately ecstatic, frustrated, transported, confused, exhausted, and lost in the zone. He and his work are extricable from one another. No one would say about Franco or his employees they're happy. Instead, people in Franco's town would say, those guys live and breathe violins, and people around the world rejoice. And as I thought about that, I thought about, the goal in our community and our churches, we want people to say about the church, not just Southwest Christian Church, but about the church, is that those men and women live and breathe Jesus and the people around the world rejoice because they get the bigger mission. And I think that's why it's so important as our work, people see how we work, the quality of our work, our attitude in our work shows 
that, yes, we are responsible and yes, we do good work, but it also points to the Father that we serve.